0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies.
1: Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano-Smith's Monterey office. I'm the co-chair of the firm's facilities and business practice group and the manager of the firm's Client News Brief, and podcast programs. So our topic today is a big one, literally. The proposed $15 billion state general obligation bond to fund school facilities. Under AB48, a bill recently signed by Governor Newsom, a measure to approve that bond will go to the voters on March 3, 2020. However, AB48 doesn't just bring us a vote on a bond measure, If approved by the voters, AB48 will have wide-ranging effects on how we fund school facilities in the state. So today, we're going to review what's packed into this landmark bill and what it might mean for how we pay for school construction in the state. It's a big topic with lots to discuss, and I have two terrific guests to help make sense of all of this. So first, I'm going to introduce Lozano-Smith partner Dan Maruccia. Who previously appeared with me and Sloan Simmons on a two-part podcast regarding the financing of clean energy projects. Dan is based out of the Sacramento office and co-chairs the firm's public finance group. He serves as bond counsel to many of our clients throughout the state. So welcome, Dan.
2: Thank you, Devin. Happy to be here.
1: Great. Okay. And also joining us is Harold Freeman. You'll remember Harold from my recent conversation with him and Bill Curley regarding the impact of the affordable housing crisis on school districts and cities. This conversation today um, is in many ways picks up from where that former discussion left off. Harold is a partner in our Walnut Creek office, where he serves as general counsel to many school district clients. Harold has been with the firm for more than 25 years. I believe that's right, Harold. That's
0: correct. That's correct.
1: Okay, great. <laughs> Throughout that time, Harold's been at the forefront of issues surrounding school facilities financing, particularly developer fees. So welcome, Harold. Thanks, Devin. Okay, great. Thank you both for making the time for this conversation. I think it's a very timely and important one. So first, I want to set the scene. Harold, let's say we want to build a school. What are the possible sources of funding to, for the construction costs in building that new school?
0: Well, there's really a view in California that there is what we often refer to as the three-legged stool of how schools get financed, with the concept being, and this dates back to legislation from the 1980s, that the state will provide approximately a third of the cost of school construction, that local bonds will provide about another third and that developer fees or school impact fees will provide the remaining third giving you your stool for the school construction. Uh, As Dan, I, and you all well know, there've been many times in California where one of those legs is a little shorter than the others and has to get propped up through other types of debt financing, certificates of participation, uh, and districts have had to get creative, but at least conceptually, again, the notion has been a third each from state, local, and developers.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Because I think today, given everything that's packed into AB48, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about all three legs of that stool. So I I think if it needs to be stated at the outset, it's important to note um, just how big an impact AB48 could have. We're talking about how to fund the construction or modernization of school facilities throughout the state, which has the potential to affect students everywhere. So, Dan, can you start by talking about the recent history of statewide facilities bonds? And when was the last one passed and the one before that? I guess kind of how we got here.
2: Sure. Um, I'll go back a little bit further because I think it's important for context. Um, back, Going back to the 80s and 90s, The state would, or the legislature would legislatively refer uh, state bond acts once about every two to four years. In the 2000s, um, starting with 2002, we had Prop 47. That was $13 billion. About 9.6 of that was for K-12, both modernization and new construction projects. You had about $100 million for charter schools there. And about 750 million dollars for for community college districts uh, two years later prop 55 that's in 2004 Those about the same size 12.3 billion um, about 7.4 billion for k-12 300 million for charter and 2.4 billion for uh, critically overcrowded schools a special program there and then you had about almost a billion for community college districts two years later again prop 1d 10.4 billion overall about 5.2 billion for k-12 modernization and new projects for new construction 1 billion for charters and voc ed split down the middle 1.5 billion for community college districts and by the way all these also provided or most of these provided for for university as well Um, and then that brings us to the last, and there was a substantial gap. So I remember I said back to the 80s and 90s and continuing on through the through the 2000s, you had about two to four years in between state bond measures. And then there was a, a desert period where the, the state wasn't or the legislature wasn't referring uh, to the voters of the state any bond measures um, and still did not up until 2016, where we had Prop 51. Prop 51 was uh, the first and only initiative measure, was not legislatively referred. That was a $9 billion dollar measure, $6 billion dollars for K-12 mod and new, split down the middle, $3 billion each, um, $1 billion for charters and voc-ed, or CTE, and uh, $2 billion for community college districts. And that brings us up to, to today, and we are uh, out of money, so it is time, mm. time again, to 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 bring us um, back some 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 more fuel from the gas station, so that uh, so that uh, school districts and community college districts and and uh, for a piece, universities as well can can meet their housing needs.
1: Okay, so I just want to underline that point. So the last bond was passed in 2016. We all remember on this call that there was a delay in selling those bonds, but we're sitting here in 2019 and essentially there's no – all those funds are allocated from the 2016 bond, Mm -hmm. Prop 51, right? Yeah. So we Mm -hmm. don't really have any any more funds at the state level.
2: Yeah, that's that's my understanding.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks. So I think one thing that we've been talking about in various ways in this podcast all year is that because we have a new governor – and he's making his mark on the state in various ways, there's been an effect on our public agency clients. So my question to you both, I'm not sure which of you wants to take the question, what's been Governor Newsom's approach to the issue of school facilities funding? And how has that been different from his predecessor? So how do we see that also in the bill that he signed, AB 48? Harold, do you want to start?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, there's definitely, we've seen a change from Governor Brown. Um, Governor Brown was reluctant to uh, both put a statewide school bond measure on and, when it passed, reluctant to sell those bonds. Uh, There's a lot of different theories about why that was, but there were a lot of indications that he really wanted to see school districts locally funding school facilities programs, school facilities construction. Um, And you can speculate, my speculation is that uh, Governor Brown was trying to put a significant amount of money into his preferred projects, which were the high-speed train and the uh, water that would be sent down to Southern California with new tunnels from Northern California, and that there was competition for what monies the voters would support, and putting schools ahead of those would potentially delay those projects. With Governor Newsom, he pretty quickly after getting into office started freeing up the ability to sell the bonds that the state had already approved under the 2016 initiative. And so there was a fairly immediate change in that regard. And his willingness as well to support putting on this next statewide bond measure seems to indicate that this governor understands that the state has to have a role in funding school facilities. Back to my three-legged stool. He has essentially acknowledged that one of those legs remains the state.
1: Interesting. Okay, Dan, does that does that kind of coincide with your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, it does. Um, you know, from the from the numbers, we you know, I went through a kind of a breakdown of where the where the money is to be allocated, and um, you know, for for the the mix between money that is allocated for modernization of k-12 facilities and money that's allocated for new construction and the history of that is is interesting if you go back to 2002 the the money that was allocated for new construction was almost double what was allocated for modernization um, the the gap starts to close in 2006 where well, actually it, it it is 3.3 for mod and 1.9 for for new, and then it evens out again in 2016 for AB 48. Um, it is heavy mod, 5.2 billion dollars allocated for modernization projects, while only 2.8 billion for new projects. There's an interesting additional wrinkle to that, um, letting us know what the what the governor's priorities are, and those are fairly clearly modernization projects over new, and that is that they've expanded the, the definition of modernization to include replacement as well mm-hmm. of facilities, and that counts as a modernization project. So we're really seeing an expand- expanded uh, ability to access um, modernization money under the new bond measure, if it's approved by the by the voters here. And aside from that, taking the three-legged stool metaphor I like to think he's, he's kind of leaning forward on that stool a little bit. The governor is on the the front two legs, and that would be the the local local dollars and and uh, state dollars as well. You know, the state's contribution is obvious, right? The state being that of the taxpayers. Right. The state statewide bond is a is a general obligation bond. Um, the state will be responsible for that debt service over time. So they're obviously taking. Uh, some responsibility there, but that's right. between those other two legs. He's leaning pretty heavily on the side of that stool, um, under which the the local money leg is placed, and uh, and therefore off that developer leg. And he's doing that in a, in a number of of discernible ways here. That's that's that becomes pretty clear as you're as you're dissecting uh, AB48. He's raising grant levels based on a school district's ability to generate local funds he's prioritizing those school districts that have lesser gross debt capacity than others that number that is the gross debt capacity is a function of um or it can be a function of how much you have outstanding how many local bonds you have outstanding so he's actually rewarding school districts that are engaging in uh, debt markets on their own uh, using local commitments and local bonds. Just raising the debt capacity limit in order for for, for folks to do that, that makes it easier for them to sell local bonds.
1: Mm, that's very interesting.
2: And as I said, he's increasing access to the SFP in a number of different ways, in part by incentivizing local bond sales, but also by making the SFP a little bit easier to get money out of. Generally, again, um, my take is that um, he's he's taking the pressure off the developer fee leg of that stool and, mm-hmm. and as between, you know, d- the developers and school districts ability or need to raise local money to provide for themselves, he's really kind of leaning on that. Th- this bill does quite a number of things um the new construction generally or has been 50 percent match recall just Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: as
2: a general concept uh the sfp also called the green act is a matching program um
1: sfp being the school facility program the Mm -hmm. school
2: facilities program right The the school facilities program is a matching program way to think about that to understand it is that Unless you have money to come and play, you can't participate. Generally, now there are hardship applications, but as a as a general concept, you must contribute something in order to access the state dollars that are uh, proceeds of this state bond. But it increases grant amounts to fifty from fifty to fifty five percent for new construction and for modernization from sixty to sixty five percent. But it does so. Uh, on a sliding scale basis between 50 and 55 and 60 and 65, depending on a number of factors, which include, importantly, uh, the district's ability to generate local funds. Right? So, if a school district has lesser ability to generate generate local funds because their gross bonding capacity is lower, they get additional points, which can push that push their grant. Uh, allocation up because they're not able to, or have, and don't have any additional gross bonding capacity to issue more debt. So he's really incentivizing folks to get out there and sell local bonds.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
2: Uh, I know we're going to talk about developer fees, but that's a major, major concession and trade-off here, um, and we'll talk at, you know, at some length about that. Uh, the bonding capacity, which we mentioned um, Which we're going to get yeah. to, Yeah. Uh, Bonding capacity here is is raised as well, and we'll talk about that. Um, That's it for for, for K-12.
1: That's Mm -hmm. it. That's it for K-12. It's a hugely impactful potential bill. So thank you, Dan, for all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, one thing I don't know if you've mentioned, for the first time, I believe these funds are available for pre-K Pre-kindergarten facilities as well. Yeah, so
2: that, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, uh, it it allows so, yeah. What the what the bill does is it it clarifies that those funds or state bond funds can be used for preschools, at school so and some other things too. Kitchens, mm-hmm. uh, space for counselors and nurses, and also uh, also uh, portable technology as well.
1: Okay, great. So. We're still on this first leg of the stool. We're talking about this potential $15 billion state facilities bond that would fund the school facility program as administered by the Office of Public School Construction, OPSC, and um, overseen by the State Allocation Board, SAB, so, Harold, could you talk a little bit – Dan just touched on this a minute ago – on how funds from AB48 would be prioritized to school districts? Uh, is there a change implicated by the bill in which school districts might get those funds first?
0: Sure. If the uh, the measure passes, the statewide measure, and we always have to preface all of this, if, if the voters actually approve the bond, because all of these changes are conditional on that – there's going to be a new school facilities program. And we've seen a push in recent years to redo the existing school facilities program uh, because in large part, there's been an argument and there's some data that backs us up that districts that are relatively uh, more well-off financially, uh, often suburban school districts, are able to get in line ahead of other school districts applying for state funding under the state grant program because they have uh, more resources. They're able to bring in consultants to help them with their applications, et cetera. As a result of which, there, there again is some data that shows relatively wealthier school districts have done better getting in line sooner in the current program than relatively uh, less well-off school districts often more rural school districts, uh, uh, less wealthy urban school districts are behind the eight ball. And under the current program, it's just a first come first serve. And there are all sorts of interesting philosophical debates about should you be rewarding those that are the most organized and well-prepared to get in line or are you really uh, rewarding those who are simply the wealthiest and able to afford to get their place in line that we don't have to try to resolve today but the new program will have a pecking order and you'll be able to jump your place in line if you meet certain of the criteria. And I'll just kind of briefly discuss these. We really don't know exactly what they'll look like until the regulations roll out for the new school facilities program, which is gonna be sometime down the road. But the priorities that they have, uh, first jumping to the top of the list are gonna be projects that are needed to address health and life safety issues which one can certainly see there's some logic to putting those at the front of the line, followed by uh, projects for school districts that are seeking financial hardship. Financial hardship has generally meant that you don't have to meet your local match, that you meet certain criteria about the degree of impacts existing in your district and other criteria um, to be able to reach financial hardship status. And the bill does indicate that that financial hardship status may be opened up a little bit more to more than may have been qualifying for it previously. So we'll have to again, wait a little bit to see, but that would be the next place in line. The next place in line uh, would be for those districts that are seeking grants for testing or remediating lead levels in water at school sites, which has been a very hot topic around the state in Mm -hmm. recent years. Sure, That's the next priority for modernization funding that's specific to modernization only. Then next in line, you go to projects that were submitted but not reviewed in the two immediately preceding quarters. What that means is when the state stops reviewing new grant applications as they come in because the state money is all spoken for, rather than just completely falling out of place, if you just missed that timeline, uh, you can, again, take your place in that pecking order. Uh, And then I find this one interesting. The next one is projects that are designed to eliminate severe overcrowding in schools, uh, which I find very interesting that it's that far down the pecking order Mm -hmm. when you're talking about severe overcrowding. Yeah. And we'll come back to that when we talk a little bit about new development and developer fees. And then finally, for everybody else, there's going to be a new program for how you get points to get your place in line that Mm -hmm. we don't know yet. So at least we know the pecking order of those priorities. Hmm.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. So for this first leg of the stool, I'm going to try to sum this up by saying that AB 48 would, if approved by the voters, infuse a very significant amount of cash into school facilities while, as you just reviewed, Harold, possibly making it easier for some districts and harder for others to access those funds than it's been in the past. And so, and then I want to turn now to the second leg of the stool, which is local bond measures. So, Dan, as you mentioned earlier, AB 48 would increase bonding capacity for local school districts across the board. Can you talk about what that would mean?
2: Sure. So, increasing bonding capacity. Um, Bonding capacity. There, there are two general limits um, on how much debt you can you can issue. Two governors, really. One governor is is a function of um, is a percentage rather of the assessed value within the bound of the all the taxable property within the boundaries of the of the school district that's issuing the debt. It has been one point two five percent for. Elementary school districts and high school districts. That is going to increase to two percent
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: for unified. It has been two point five percent, which is double what it was for non non-unified school districts. That is going to go to four mm-hmm. uh, percent. Community college districts are going to go from two point five percent to four percent. So it so it uh, it expands. Um, one of those one of those two limiting factors that determine uh, how much debt you can you can put out there and have outstanding. The other limiter is the, is the tax rate uh, limit. There is no tax rate limit under traditional authority bonds, which are also called you know two-thirds bonds because they require a two-thirds vote of the electorate to pass. That does not change for, but for prop, uh, 39 bonds, which has, from their inception, um, a tax rate limit of uh, $30 uh, per $100,000 uh, assessed value for non-unified school districts and, and $60 per $100,000 for unified school districts. Those don't change. So. While the uh, the debt capacity limit for school districts and community colleges go up, the tax rate limit does not. Although it's important to point out that the tax rate limit is a measure specific limit. What that means is that while the, the debt rate limit is an is an aggregation of all general obligation bond debt from whatever authority that a school district has out there at any particular time, and that's the number that you look at, the tax rate limit itself is limited to uh, the tax rate that is required to service bond debt from a particular measure. So if you're running up against your tax rate limit on your existing bond measure, you can get a brand new day in a brand new brand new tax rate limit without regard to aggregating it with the other tax uh, taxes that are levied to service others other measures bond debt um, you can you don't have to calculate those others you get a fresh new tax rate uh, for for each measure
1: okay okay great so drawing back a little bit Dan just big picture uh, for those who may not be aware what are some of the challenges a school district has to confront just to pass a local bond measure to raise those local funds and what are the requirements to do so
2: so the legal requirements uh, uh, the biggest one of course is is the is the vote threshold right? mm-hmm. um, the traditional authority two-thirds bond you need you need you know, two-thirds vote of the electorate um, as opposed to Prop Thirty Nine, you only need fifty-five percent. Two-thirds is a is a is a tough. Right. So
1: what of the two. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Two-thirds is a tough thing to get to for, for many many school districts. Uh, there are some benefits to going to uh, using a two-thirds bond. You have less limitation as to when you're going to be bringing that bond measure uh, to your voters. Fifty-five um, percent bonds or Prop Thirty-nine percent bonds can only be done in a statewide statewide elections or at a regularly scheduled local election, at which all the, the, the electorate is, is qualified to vote on. But those are kind of, those are kind of few and far between, generally speaking. Prop 39 bond measures um, at the local level are, are done every other year, and you get two bites at the apple uh, for those. There are also some other um, accountability requirements that go along with Prop 39 bonds. But in either case, the, the challenge is, is really getting, getting, your, getting your stakeholders informed, getting the community informed, reaching out, uh, accessing uh, their opinions and soliciting their opinions as to uh, what you're going to be proposing to use the bond funds on. Prop 39 requires a detailed project list. From from the practitioner standpoint, that project list should be. Uh, you want you know you want it to be. Um, you want to have some flexibility there because a bond program can last you six years, and over the course of six years, things can change yeah. and change rapidly, as we saw in in two thousand seven, two thousand eight.
1: Okay, so to bring this back to AB forty eight, I think what I, what I'd like to know is, will. Increased bonding capacity lead to more local bond funds being available. Given all the constraints you just reviewed on just the ability to pass a local bond, is is, is it as simple as increased bonding capacity equals more local funds, or is it more complicated than that?
2: Well, it's it's it is more complicated than that, um, and one of the reasons for that was, as I described, it doesn't raise the the tax rate limit, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So uh there is, there is more bonding capacity, sure, um, but you still have that other governor. Um, I, I think what that re- results in um, is that you're going to see more bond measures come November, more local bond me- measures. Mm-hmm. Um, that together with all the other uh, pieces within AB 48 that incentivize uh, school districts to sell bonds at the local level and provide for local dollars and alleviate uh the the need for for developer fees there's just a host of things that translate into a forecast that we're going to be seeing a lot of local local measures in november um mm-hmm. uh, as this as this rolls out because that's just mathematically how how it works out in my view
1: okay so we're talking about november 2020 yeah
2: yeah Mm-hmm.
1: okay great Okay, so that's really helpful, all of that. Thank you, Dan. So now we come, Harold, to the last leg of this stool, the developer fees. And as Dan has already indicated, this bill, AB48, would tend to rely more on the first two legs rather than this last leg. And as you and I covered in a prior podcast, we talked generally about what the scheme in the state is for developer fees and who pays them, but could you just review that briefly, what are developer fees, who pays them, and what are the three levels of fees, at least under present law?
0: Right. Well, in California, um, as in many parts of the country, when a developer is going to be building residential housing, commercial units, um, really any type of development, there's a number of different fees that they pay that are often called impact or mitigation fees. A lot of those fees are local fees that are police, fire, library, park, sanitation, etc., cetera, that flow through the local city or county that's approving the project. But there's also this category of school impact fees that directly go to the school districts. Um, they sometimes are collected by the cities or the counties, but ultimately flow to the school districts. And this all traces back to, uh, again, the 1980s when developer fees first were codified into what were known as sterling fees for the author of the bill then, there was just one level of developer fee. And it started at $1.50 per square foot. So you just multiply the square footage of residential development times that $1.50 and a much lower amount per square foot for commercial. And it escalated over time. But in 1997-1998, There was a new bill, SB 50, Senate Bill 50, that reached a compromise to get one of the statewide bond measures that Dan spoke about onto the ballot. Uh, The developers, in exchange for supporting rather than opposing that measure, sought uh, really reform of the way that developer fees are collected. And the result that we got were the three levels of fees that we talk about now, Importantly, SB 50 initially and most importantly stated that no longer could school districts oppose a project under the California Environmental Quality Act because of its impact on schools if the school impact fees were paid. Now since then the law has evolved to recognize that only has to do with the question of school overcrowding, the adequacy of the capacity of the schools to take on kids, it didn't do away with school districts' abilities to raise issues under CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, about traffic and safety and noise and other types of conditions. But it did say that for overcrowding itself, that CEQA door was closed. And what the districts were given was three levels of fees that they could collect. And if a district can justify the fee, it can continue collecting the inflated version of that $1. fifty fee from long ago. Um, that has now inflated all the way to $3.79 per square foot for a K-12 district. And it's a lesser amount if you're an elementary or a high school district. But for a K-12 district, or I should now say TK through 12, um, you get the three seventy nine if you are able to show the justification for it. But if you meet an additional set of criteria, you can also qualify for a higher level two fee. And the level two fee is not a set dollar amount. Rather, it's you plug in a formula that the statute gives you, and you get the number that spits out in response. And we have districts in the state that have gone as high as $11, $12, $13 per square foot on level two fees. And then beyond that, you have the level three fee. The notion of the level three fee that was established way back in 1997-98 is that if the state ever runs out of statewide bond money that we've been talking about, that you are then able to collect from the developer a higher fee if you're eligible for the level two fee. And that higher fee is roughly double the amount of the level two fee. So we had districts in the state that were actually getting fees as high for level three being eligible for 22, 23, $24 per square foot. Um, but the development community has always pushed back against level three fees, and there have been very narrow windows where there hasn't been state funding, but there hasn't also been a lawsuit filed by the Building Industry Association, and so very few level three fees were ever collected.
1: Okay. Okay. So now, with that terrific setting of the scenery, how would AB 48, if, if approved, how would it change the law? On developer fees, how would each of those aspects you just discussed be, be changed?
0: Well, just as in 1997-98, a compromise got reached to get a statewide bond measure on, that compromise again affecting the ability of districts to raise CEQA issues over school overcrowding, this new bill, in order to get the new statewide bond measure on, has again uh, impacted school districts and their ability to collect fees, and there are very specific ways it did so. All of this has to do initially with multifamily housing. And to step back for a moment, there's been a debate for the last few years over affordable housing issues and the extent to which local impact fees and school impact fees have increased the cost of housing. And the main area that people have been looking at of late and that Governor Newsom is very interested in is uh, affordable housing near transit areas. And that means things like BART stations, uh, major uh, train stations, major uh, crisscrossing of bus stations and the like, that they've been trying to encourage the building of multifamily homes to help alleviate the housing crisis. And theoretically, by putting them by transit centers, you're also helping with traffic problems. And as a result, what this bill has now done is said that if you have a multifamily housing project that is within a certain distance of the um, transit centers as get defined so they're within close proximity those units do not pay any school impact fees wow they've completely eliminated the level one the level two and the possibility of level three fees even those units will continue to pay for police fire you know local yeah. fees for the state they pay nothing And one of the things that fed into that is this notion that those types of units produce few or no children. And I just want to share anecdotally, as I think I have before in another uh, podcast that we did, that that assumption isn't necessarily safe. We have a school district that is located right by a BART station, uh, Bay Area Rapid Transit. And initially, in the first few years of multifamily development that went in by that new BART station, the student generation ratio was very, very low. Very few children were being generated by the units. And the development community has latched on to that kind of data to say, see, families with kids don't live in these units. But in that district, what's happened as the housing has matured is that the student generation yield that had been in place has tripled. And we now have more students being generated per multifamily unit by the BART station on average, than we do in single-family homes existing elsewhere in the district. Mm-hmm. And what's happened as the affordable housing crisis continues, uh, people have been buying what they can get and often that means moving a family of five into a two or three-bedroom apartment. Much has happened in urban centers around the country. It's now starting to hit more relatively suburban areas, particularly here in the Bay Area, but also, also elsewhere around the state. So based on this assumption or argument that there's less impact there, we've lost the ability to charge fees should this bill pass. And we have to always, again, caution, should should uh, the statewide bond measure pass, then this will go into effect. And in addition to limiting or eliminating your ability to collect from these units that are within a half mile of a major transit stop, They also have reduced by 20% the amount of developer fees that you can collect for any multifamily housing. That's anywhere within the district outside that half mile. Mm. So if you're building an apartment complex, certain attached townhomes, you may get a reduction in your school impact fees of 20%. All of this is intended, again, to try to address the affordable housing crisis. But the problem, Devin, is this faulty assumption, or at least potentially faulty, that if developers have to pay less to school districts, they will necessarily reduce the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you an example for that. And that example is, and this is, these are numbers that are random numbers just made up, but if a developer buys a, an area to build a home and that unit is going to be built on a piece of land that costs the developer $100,000, and it costs $200,000 for the developer to build the unit, and it costs $100,000 in local and state fees Uh, to get all of the approvals necessary. That's a $400,000 investment by the developer. So if the developer sells the home for $500,000, they will make a profit of $100,000 in that example. The assumption that's getting made right now, I think, particularly in the legislature, is that if you reduce the $100,000 that they have to pay to schools and potentially even to local agencies to $50,000, now the developer can still make $100,000 if they reduce the price of the unit from $500,000 to $450,000. The problem is that's not how developers tend to price their units. They look at what the market will bear. If the market will bear $500,000, they will charge $500,000 mm-hmm. and they'll pocket in profit the $50,000 they saved in fees. And so all of this is coming from some uh, potentially poorly founded Arguments that are out there about how this will impact affordable housing. What it will impact is that for districts that have a lot of multifamily housing going in, you're going to get less in developer fees. And then finally, the other impact, and I don't know if this was an unintentional impact, but it's one that jumps out to us. Uh, Dan and I have certainly discussed, is that to qualify for level two fees, you have to both be eligible for state uh, funding through the school facilities program but you also have to meet two out of four criteria that are laid out in the code. And I won't walk through all of the criteria, but one of those criteria is that you have incurred debt up to a certain delineated percentage of your total bonding capacity. And a lot of districts rely on that as one of their two criteria out of the four that they have to meet. Sure. Those same districts often also rely on a second criteria, which is that in the last four years, you tried to pass a local general obligation bond. Mm -hmm. What happens is as the legislature gives us an increased bonding capacity locally for school districts that Dan discussed, it also gets harder to qualify for that criteria for level two fees because before you may have been at 30% of your total local bonding capacity in the debt you've incurred and be eligible for that. Well, now your debt is much higher of what you can incur, and 30% now is is a much harder standard to meet. Mm-hmm. So if you've almost doubled your bonding capacity, in a sense, you've almost halved your ability to get to that percentage, to get to that 30%. So what may happen is that school districts find that they're dropping out of the level two fee eligibility altogether. Mm. Um, and so this bill will have very profound and very long-lasting impacts on school impact fees again not all of which i'm entirely sure the legislature fully understood when they passed the bill but this is the price that is being paid in order to get that statewide bond and really goes back to what something dan mentioned which is when we talk about those that three-legged stool there's no question that Governor Newsom and this legislation has really shortened that developer fee piece of the stool, mm-hmm. uh, and in attempting to make up for that by propping up the statewide bond funds and the local bond funds with the greater bonding capacity.
1: Right, right. So, so Harold, you've hinted at this a little bit, but why do you think that the that this limitation on developer fees? or elimination in some circumstances came about in this bill. You know, I can understand why the developer community pushed for this, but why did the legislature and ultimately the governor get on board with with these limitations?
0: Well, again, Devin, I think it goes back to this drive for affordable housing mm-hmm. and the argument that developers have made and some affordable housing advocates have made for years now that you are paying too much in fees, and it's basically pricing developers out of the market. They have to pass on uh, the higher costs that they're paying to the home buyer, and that drives up the cost of housing. Again, that may be based on this potentially faulty assumption that developers will necessarily pass on the cost savings to home buyers. Right, right. And the notion that paying less in school impact fees is going to somehow reduce the cost of housing I don't think that has been demonstrated yet. There's certainly arguments that you can make about it, but I think that that's a driving force. And then the other piece of it is, again, just the compromise. It is very hard to get a statewide bond measure put on the ballot and passed without the support of the building community. One would think that the California Building Industry Association would be supportive of any local general obligation and any statewide general obligation bond Mm -hmm. measure, because it helps build schools. And that ultimately, uh, let's face it, developers sell homes. One of the first things they often say is good schools or a school located nearby. It benefits the development community. But they have sought for years to push off their share of the obligation uh, back to the state voters. And that's exactly what's happened here. It's the same thing that happened in 1997-98 with SB50. And I doubt it will be the last time we see it. What I sincerely hope is that this is not the beginning of a deeper chipping away at developer fees for school impacts altogether. And mm-hmm. you know, I think of global warming and the, uh, mm. we're watching the melting ice as we look around the world. It feels a little bit that way when it comes to the school impact fees. It's very hard to maintain adequate school facilities when you don't have really all three parts of that stool in place in California.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you. So now I'm going to start moving towards our close with a big picture question for both of you. We've been using this metaphor of the three-legged stool throughout the podcast. And we have reviewed that um, AB 48, if approved by the voters, will certainly make a lot more state money available. It has the potential to make a lot more local money available. And it also almost certainly will limit, at least in some cases, the collection of developer fees. So, I'm wondering if you both could comment on this question, if if AB 48 gets voter approval, will we need a new metaphor to talk about school facilities funding? So I guess my question is, how big might the impact be in the long run? Is it a game changer? Harold, you just spoke to this a little bit, but Dan, maybe you could go first from your perspective. Is this a game changer?
2: No, I don't think it is a game changer. Uh, It's still a three-legged stool after all, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it is just, um, there is a shifting of reliance. The theory, you know, the theory becomes um, the, the the locals, local taxpayers ought to shoulder that burden, that port, that portion of the burden that was, that was, was otherwise and would otherwise be that of the developers. So, it's still a three-legged stool. It's just moving the weight um, on the top of that stool from one corner of the stool um, uh, to, to another. Uh, so okay. it's still a three-legged stool. I don't see it as a, as a game changer, um, but right now, um, and for reasons that we discussed, the need for you know, multifamily housing, housing in general, and seeking to alleviate what the state believes or the governor believes are is an overburdening situation on the on the developers to 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 meet those housing demands is moving away from from that and then on to uh, local taxpayers uh, to pick up that slack.
1: Okay. Okay, thank you. So Harold, what do you think? Is this a game changer?
0: Well, I am I guess this is point and counterpoint. I think it has the potential on yeah. some fronts to be a bit of a game changer because I, I do think it signals a further chipping away at that leg of the stool that involves school impact fees, developer fees. Mm-hmm. And if it were the case that the new statewide bond measure is going to completely fill in for what we lose from what we've lost on the developer fee side, it would be less significant. But the problem is that Let's take the example of a suburban school district that has had a tremendous amount of new development and is now fairly significantly overcrowded. They need new schools. There's no question about it. When they go to the state under the new school facilities program that would be implemented if this statewide bond measure passes, when they go to the state for funding, they've got to get in line, not based on their planning, not based on the expertise that they brought to preparing their application and getting in line first, but the priorities that I discussed earlier. And overcrowding moves you up the list a little bit, but it still puts you behind a lot of other categories, Mm -hmm. as a result of which there are districts that are going to be facing the following scenario. We are losing some of our developer fees, in some cases significant portions of our developer fees. We potentially are falling out of level two status altogether, so there may be districts that are losing... 50% of their developer fees or even more uh, coming from all different types of development. And then obviously the multifamily, we talked about losing funding there as well. If they could get in line and get that money back from the state, that's great. But now they're being told, you're not going to get in line based on your planning. You're not going to get in Mm -hmm. line based on your foresight. You're going to get in line based on the formula that we're going to come up with and the Uh, there are gonna be people who are gonna jump right over you. So there are absolutely school districts that even though there'll be more statewide bond money available, and ultimately those districts will probably benefit, there's gonna be some harsh realities to face. And again, I think a lot of unintended consequences. It's great to help those districts that need help on how to get the state funding, move up the, uh, the ladder to get that state funding. But for every dollar that goes to the district that needs it on the one hand, there's a dollar taken away from a district potentially that needs it on the other hand. And so th- it's going to take a while to see how the fruit falls from this tree, Yeah. but there's no question that the, the tree is being shaken rather considerably.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, so there's a lot to watch here. So um, I really appreciate perspective from both of you and thank you both for your time to talk about this important topic. And we will certainly be watching come March, what happens and presumably We should do a recap at that point if indeed AB 48 um, achieves voter approval. So thank you both for your time today.
2: Happy to talk to you. Thank you both. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: And so now I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at LozanoSmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And thanks, everybody.
0: If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general... Its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.